I want to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah speaking to uh, a people in exile, a people in captivity. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Can you say no more? No more. No more. Nunca más. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this season, this new year, centered on Christ, Jesus. Thank you that you're present here by your spirit. This candle reminds us of your presence and of the hope, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of sadness and death. We know there is hope and you are here. Lord, awaken our hearts to your hope, the hope of your healing by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Deuteronomy 33, 6 says this, and it's pretty powerful. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Why? So that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live and live. I want to proclaim and declare to us that into a world dying of a terminal illness, terminal sin, sickness, Jesus comes and there is hope. The great physician, Jesus Christ, has shared in our diseased humanity so that we might share in his healed humanity. The Spirit of God is coming to us, coming to you and to our world right now healing and restoring us to new life. That's the good news. Jesus has shared in our broken and diseased humanity so that we might share in his healed humanity. And that is what Christmas and Jesus is all about. Amen. In 1960, uh, the Israeli undercover agents uh, pulled off one of the greatest kidnappings in history, they they got a tip that one of the leaders, uh, the orchestrators of the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, was hiding in South America, and so they went. They did a covert operation. They snagged him and they brought him uh, back to Israel to be brought forth by before the tribunal of, of war crimes, and his name was Adolf Eichmann. Has anyone heard of Adolf Eichmann? Mike Platt has Adolf Eichmann. He was uh, 
responsible for millions of murders of the Jewish people. And he himself, by his own hand, carried out uh, murders of Jewish people, torturing and executing them by his own hand. So these agents brought him back, Eichmann, to stand trial. And as these trials go, they bring um, witnesses to the war atrocities, survivors of the Holocaust before in the courtroom to make their accusations, to identify and say, this is the man. I saw him kill my brother, my sister, my, my, my people. And so they brought witness after witness over. And one of the last witnesses, his, his name was, I'm going to try to get this right. I'm not going to get it right. But his, I got to find it. Where is it? Yahil Denur. Go for it. Yahil Denur. He was a small, haggard Jewish man. And he had miraculously escaped Auschwitz. And Denur was brought up, kind of limping up, to give testimony, to testify against Eichmann. And as he stared at the former Nazi mass murderer behind bulletproof glass, the courtroom was silent. And they were waiting for what Denur would say about this murderer who was responsible for the death of his friends and his family. But no one was prepared for what happened next. Denur, as he got up, as he began to speak, as he looked at Eichmann in the face, he broke down and he crumpled to the floor and he was weeping and sobbing and crying out in indistinguishable noise. And he never testified. He was ushered out of the courtroom. He couldn't bring himself to speak. And he was interviewed by 60 Minutes not long after. And they said, why? Was it because you were overcome by the hatred in this man's face, by his war crimes, by what you saw him do? And he said, no. He explained that he was not the demon he expected. Instead, Eichmann was an ordinary man, just like you and just like me. And in that moment, I came to the realization that sin and evil are the human condition. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. And then as a 60 Minutes interviewer was shocked, he said something even more shocking that still shocks us. He said, there is Eichmann in all of us. There's Eichmann in all of us. Do you believe that? Can you resonate with that? Do you see that in our world? Do you see that in our neighborhood? Do you see glimpses of Eichmann, the sickness of sin and death, lurking, threatening, infecting us? Do you see it in yourself? I see the sickness in me. I see it every time anger flares up at my children because they won't do what I want them to do. I see it when I um, have lustful thoughts that seem milliseconds away, just coming. I see it uh, when I'm preoccupied with my financial future and begin to cling to what I have. I see it in myself. Maybe you see it in yourself. I see it in our neighborhood. As I was reflecting this year, I know five people that have died in our neighborhood, that I've actually had conversations with, that have, I've shared meals with, 
that I've let use my phone. I'm, I'm one, one was a woman who had two kids and I, she borrowed my phone and she called, she called her sister weeping and saying, I, I need, I need food. Can you come bring me food? And that's the conversation I overheard. And two weeks later, she had died of an overdose. I, uh, a friend of ours that have eaten meals in this building with us just died of alcohol poisoning on and off the streets. We know we're familiar with the sin and the terminal illness that we suffer from. And we might ask, sometimes I feel hopeless. You know, sometimes I feel like, is there a glimpse of hope? Is the, does the sun rise? Is this candle going to be able to shine into the darkness and heal our woundedness? And I'm just going to repeat this. I'm going to declare this a couple times. Yes, right? There is hope. There's hope for this terminal illness called sin. Jesus has come and there is hope. The great physician, Jesus Christ, has shared in our diseased humanity that we might share in his healed humanity. The Spirit of God right now is coming to us actively in great love, healing and restoring us and the world to new life. So this is Advent, the very first week of Advent. And we're going to explore the meaning of Jesus' death. And we're going to frame it as the early Christians framed it. The first church um, fathers and mothers, the first 400 years, thought of the work of Jesus in a medical metaphor. Along the lines of Jesus as the great physician and sin as the deep sickness that we need healing from. This is the faith of the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian creeds, uh, that we all uh, still are supposed to cling to. And it simply is this, that Jesus is God's way of undoing human evil in a personal and loving way. And his incarnation, can I break that word down? Incarnation is carne, carne adevada, right? Carne is meat. Incarnation is God in the flesh. God become meat, flesh and bone. God himself, fully God, comes into our flesh and bone existence fully, fully God, fully man. And that is a miracle. And that is powerful. The healing presence of the creator God comes fully into our ex human experience to our flesh and blown and that is how he heals the world, by taking on sickness himself and doing battle, doing surgery within himself, resisting the sickness his entire life, taking sickness, sin, and death down into death and rising from the dead in newness of life, fully healed. And by his spirit, he offers that healed and restored body to us that we might undergo surgery and have that sin cut out of us and restored to newness of life. So next four weeks, I want to ask you to adjust your imaginations a little bit. Predominantly in the, in the West, in the last 500 years of the church, we have thought of Jesus' work in terms of 
the courtroom, and God as judge who must punish the sinner. I want to move us out of the courtroom into the hospital. I want to move us from God as primarily judge or the way we think of him as judge, sitting on a bench, to a surgeon, desperately caring for with the love of, uh, with his love, desiring to cut out that which is killing us. Can we do that? Would you do that? Would you go on that journey with me? Let's look at the scripture again. Well, let's get the diagnosis first. What, what, what are, where is this coming from? God in Genesis 1 and 2 creates, he, he's, he lives in perfect community, perfect love with God's self, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He doesn't need anything else, but he desires to share his love and open up his community. He's invitational, hospitable. So he wants to share. The only way that God can get more glory is if his glory is experienced and shared with more people. So he creates the world in great love. (coughs) Everything is whole. There's wellness in all directions. Shalom. But, and then Genesis 3, right? What happens? He creates man and woman, humanity, and they decide to take what is God's into their own hands, their right to define good and evil within themselves. And that brings the curse. It brings the disease. It infects the world. And we, at that point, a terminal illness, a cancer begins to grow in us and in all creation. And so we see the woman's conversation with the serpent, humanity, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will die. Romans 6, 323, I think, says the wages of sin is death. I would like the wages. This is the consequences. This is the way of sin leads to death. If I put my hand on this, how? On this candle, it's going to burn. The wages of putting my handle, my hand over the candle is, ow, hurt. If I were to hold myself under that flame, the wages of holding myself over that candle would be death, torture. I love you. The wages of sin is the consequence. The way of sin goes against the grain of love and of life. And that's why God says, don't do it, man, because it's going to kill you. Sin is its own punishment. It leads to death. And so Adam and Eve bring this in. Humanity brings us in. This is, this is why there's Eichmann in all of us. There's Eichmann in all of us. So that's the diagnosis. The prescription we see almost immediately. God promises a great physician will come in Genesis 3.15. He says there will one come, one that will come. I don't think I have this up here. One will come that will crush the head of the serpent and will be pierced and will crush the head of the serpent, will be victorious over this curse. And so then we have hints of this prescription. Deuteronomy 36 um, and 10, 16. Do we have that scripture up there? God calls Israel. This is in the context of giving the law and giving all of the commandments. And he says, look, this is about, this is surgery. 
This is about circumcising your hearts, cutting away what is killing you. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. And so this shows that God was calling Israel to be both surgeon and patient. When God said circumcise your heart, he meant that if Israel would internalize the commandments deeply enough through their active obedience and faithfulness, they would be able to cut away the corruption of sin from human nature. Imagine being a co-surgeon with God on your own heart. Of course, it's true, right, that Israel and you and me were not able to fully carry out the prescription. Sin was too strong of a disease. It's too strong. It pulls us down. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I'm, I'm struggling with the sin, and I'm at war with it. <laughs> it's a strong disease. So God promised, give me the next Deuteronomy passage, Blanca. He promised, okay, you can't do it. I'll do it. I'll be the surgeon. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And again, that you would live, right? God, I've said this before, but I think I want to say it again. God is not obsessed with sin. He's obsessed with life. He wants you to live. He wants you to, that's what, the, that's what this is all about. He doesn't want you to burn in, in the consequences of, of sin. I, when I say burn, I don't mean hell. I'm talking about just the hell created by our consent to sin, going against the grain of God's love. He, he desires life. And so he says, I will do the surgery. I will cut away the sin. And so we have that Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 passage that I read. Slightly different imagery. In chat, you can write this down, but in Jeremiah 4, 4, um, he uses this circumcision language as well. But in this passage, he says, I want you to write the law on your heart. And if you can't do it, I will do it. I'll do it for you. I'll internalize the commandments, the way of life, that it becomes a part of you. It's cutting away the, the, the sin that so easily entangles and allows us to move into a way, into a path of life. And again, Proverbs 29 said, it says, no one can say I've cleansed my own heart, that I'm pure from my sin. And so Israel gave in to sin more and more, and it becomes deep, more deeply written on our hearts. And that's what we do. We write sin more deeply into our hearts. We feed the disease. Sin is a sickness that can get worse. Can we agree on that? Yes. It gets worse based on what we do. Sin only started with the fall. But we do a lot of things that make ourselves sicker. Think of someone, maybe uh, the first thing that came to mind is diabetes, right? Because just because I understand, I don't know very much. But I know you can take insulin and you can eat in ways that make you balance out your blood sugar. Or you can just like have Cap'n Crunch for breakfast and eat ding-dongs and Twinkies for lunch and dinner. And you will go into, is it anaphylactic shock? Something like that. A coma. We can make ourselves sicker 
This is what we do. We feed the beast instead of perform, submit to the prescription that Jesus gives us. But Jeremiah held on to hope, right? He says, okay, you guys aren't doing this. You're writing it deeper into your hearts. <coughs> but there is one to come that will write it on your hearts. There's a new covenant, a new way. So this is all medical surgical language connected to our life. So that's the problem. What we need is a great physician. Oh, mm. Look at this. Dr. Evan. That's okay. Put it back. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane in 1861. That's when he was born. He died in 1932. This is from a New York Times article in early in 1921. Operating on himself at the age of 60. This is him operating on himself, giving himself, is it an appendectomy? Taking his very own appendix out. Why, you ask? There's no reports that his appendix had ruptured. He didn't need to remove it. He just wanted to remove it. Why? I wasn't expecting that to be funny, but that's good. I, I get it. I get it. Here's why he did this. Yeah, at this stage in medical um, technology, history, progress, uh, they could only do this kind of surgery under general anesthesia, meaning you are put completely out by ether. And not everyone could tolerate ether. They were allergic to it. And he believed the surgery would be better done lo with local anesthesia, so where the person is numbed but awake. But no one would believe this. And so he wanted to prove it. And so he's like, okay. No one else, I'll do it on myself. And so he became the surgeon, the physician, and the patient. He loved his patients enough that he decided to become one of them. He wanted to experience surgery from the patient's perspective. And so he, you see him here, he's using mirrors. His assistants are holding up mirrors to enable him to see the work area and he did it. He yanked it out. And happily, he was well enough the following day to go home. Now, he went on to perform many more appendectomies with local anesthesia um, on many people who needed it. And of course, those were acts of love and service to other people, to people who needed it. But the surgery he performed on himself was the starting point. It was the source of everyone else's surgery and everyone else's healing. It was the decisive moment, the focal point, and the source from which Dr. Kane performed every other surgery. He took the greatest risk on himself first. Every other surgery was an aspect of that surgery. It was a shadow, a hint of the surgery he had already performed on himself. You see where I'm going with this? I'm sharing the story to illustrate the price and the depth and the length that Jesus went in his great love for us to heal us of our sin sickness. We need surgery. Jesus became both physician and patient. He took on our human sickness, the very corrupt nature of our human condition. He resisted sin 
like a, like a cut, like a surgical cut. Every time he resisted it, he was circumcising his own heart. He was fully human and fully God. The ancient church had this saying that said, what Jesus does not assume, he does not heal. He had to assume, take on all of us in order to heal all of us. And so he takes us fully on. He performed a type of surgery on himself for almost 40 years to change that human nature. His surgical cuts in himself rooted in the rooted out this human selfishness that we all experience, right? Our resistance to the love of God. Every desire that was never meant to be in the human heart, he resisted. He cut it away. But he had to remove, go beyond removing just one organ. Our whole body's infected. So he resisted every, to every point, struggled against sin his whole life, never giving in. And he was, success, he was successful where everyone else failed, where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where you and me fail. He was successful. He never sinned. He never gave up. And he bent his human nature to the love of God. And when he died in the, uh, on the cross and he took death down into the grave, he took our corrupt human nature with him. And when he rose from the dead, he rises fully healed, fully whole, a human being, as we were meant to be, as we were created to be. And when he ascends to heaven, by his spirit, he gives us his new, a new life, a new nature, the ability to be co-surgeons with God on our hearts, to circumcise our hearts. And he is faithful to walk with us every step of the way as we consent to his healing work in our hearts. He's doing surgery. So I'm done. All right. Oh, two minutes. This Advent, I will have a question. We're going to dive into this a little bit more. But when we remember and celebrate God coming to us in Jesus, will you let Jesus come to you and into you to heal you? Will you let him do surgery on your heart? You have to cooperate. He doesn't put every, anyone under the knife that doesn't want to be under there. You have to trust him with that scalpel. And you have to consent to his work and follow his spirit, and allow him to cleanse you and to heal you. He longs to do it. His posture towards you is love. He stands before you like, like a, a surgeon, a doctor, who sees a disease killing you and doesn't hate you. He hates the thing killing you, and he wants it out. And so... He asks you, will you participate with me? So where do you see the symptoms of this terminal illness in your life? Is it the anger? Does it flash up in the anger, bitterness and unforgiveness towards a person who's hurt you? Is it greed? Is it lust? Listen, there is hope. The great physician, Jesus Christ, shared in your diseased humanity that he might share his healed humanity by his very spirit. And he is coming to you right now and every moment of the day, healing and restoring you to new life.